Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and history podcast. You're listening to episode 12, Krusty Gets the Singing Revolution. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Irons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the first time the episode aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Love whom we love. Purchase large quantities of ice cream when we purchase large quantities of ice cream. Mmm. <laughs> ice cream. Triple chocolate. And today, I'll be discussing Season 1, Episode 12, Krusty Gets Busted, which aired originally on April 29th, 1990. And I'm going to be talking about the singing revolution Now, these are the events between 1987 and 1991 that led to the independence of the Baltic states. So that's Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia. So no specific date this week, but it was certainly happening when Krusty Gets Busted was first aired. Excellent. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Nice one. And I just want to say hello to Mr. Sandwich. Uh, that, that's Neil. Thanks for getting in touch with us on Twitter, and sorry we couldn't answer your pacemaker questions. Yes, but you should really make a priority of answering those questions. Uh, yeah, but I don't know, maybe Neil should be seeing a doctor. Before. It's a possibility. We don't have many listeners, we have to look after them all. So That is true, that is true. <laughs> Excellent, so... Uh, as I said before, Krusty gets busted, April the 29th, 1990. US viewership had a uh, Nielsen rating of 16.4. That gave it 13th place overall and made it the highest rated Fox show of the week, which means we won't be discussing Married with Children this week. Oh. But Gareth, I hear you holler. What was number one in the UK hit parade on that particular day? Well, despite a two-week gap, it's still Madonna with Vogue which is even more vexing for those of us who don't remember it being number one in the first place, such as me. (laughs) But we have an interesting song to talk about at number two. It's Paula Abdul featuring MC Scat Cat with Opposites Attract. (laughs) That's the one where she's going up the stairs, isn't it? That's the one, yes. Jaunty angle, yes. Yes, it is indeed. Uh, So Paula Abdul is an ex-cheerleader and choreographer whose debut album, Forever Your Girl, from which this is lifted, sold 7 million copies in the States and set a record for the most number one singles from a debut album on the Billboard Hot 100 chart with four. This one, Cold Hearted, Forever Your Girl and Straight Up, the latter of which is a banger. She would go on to be a judge on American Idol and The X Factor, but my favourite Paula Abdul fact is that she choreographed the dance sequences in my favourite Arnold Schwarzenegger film, The Running Man. Okay. Uh, Full disclosure, I think this is a great tune. And that sound you can hear in the distance is my punk rock cred leaking away like air from a stricken balloon. (laughs) So that's a bit of biased declaration up front. But what's with this MC scat cat business? Well, the song is a duet of sorts with a couple describing how they're completely different to each other, but oddly suited, in a relationship that definitely isn't going to get old in the next few years and end in massive recrimination. Providing the significant other's viewpoint are the vocal talents of the wild pair, Bruce DeShazer and Marv Gunn, and rapper Derek Delight Stevens. Perhaps they were not considered visually interesting enough, as they are represented in the video by an animated cat. (laughs) 
an idea that apparently came from Gene Kelly dancing with Jerry the Mouse in Anchors Away. The animated MC would go on to have an album, The Adventures of MC Scat Cat and the Stray Mob, because why not? <laughs> the album predictably bombed, though Cat appeared in a recent episode of American Dad, because why not? Yeah, that's got to be up there for people who collect naff bits of memorabilia the MC Scat Cat album surely. absolutely I can't remember the source but uh, somebody described it as the least essential artefact of the 90s <laughs> um, which is uh, to be honest that's giving the Yellow album too much credit but uh, yeah. we'll, we'll come to that in 1998 yeah. or anything by Jive Bunny and the Master Mixers oh oh basically any musical act fronted by an, an animation I think we're saying here yeah, I think so. I think so. It, 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 was a, it was a bit of a gimmick. Everything pretty much instantly forgettable. I can't even remember how Do the Bartman goes, and I saw it not that long ago. Well, we will be coming to that sooner rather than later, I feel. So, oh, okay. Uh, you better, better dust off your copy. Um, returning to the episode, the production run was 7G12, so a rare example in season one where it was produced in the same order it was shown. Uh, the chalkboard gag is they are laughing at me, not with me. <laughs> a little bit paranoid from Bart there. And the couch gag is Maggie popping out of the couch and landing harmlessly in Marge's arms, which I'm sure we've seen before, but I couldn't be bothered to look up when. Yep, definitely. <laughs> the writers of this episode were Jay Kogan and Wallace Wolodowski, who we discussed in our third episode, The Morris Worms Odyssey. We did. And here's what happens in the episode. Mm, there's a bit of fingering in this episode, isn't there? <laughs> see episode three for more fingering oh dearie me yes yes well let's not get to the fingering straight away um, <laughs> hold your horses absolutely so Bart and Lisa are watching the Krusty the Clown show which opens with the following call and response sequence which Tom will now help me to do yep hi kids who do you love Krusty how much do you love me with all our heart what would you do if I went off the air we'd kill ourselves Although it's worth noting that the juvenile suicide rate did not spike when Krusty got cancelled in later episodes, so that's a rather disingenuous assertion. Mm, mm. Anyway, Krusty attempts to fire his sidekick, Sideshow Bob, out of a cannon, but over-applies the gunpowder, leading to a much less spectacular but much more painful-looking explosion. Krusty then hits what appears to be his catchphrase. Don't blame me. I didn't do it! Which is odd, as that will be Bart's catchphrase when he joins the cast of the Krusty the Clown show. Hmm. So much history. Yeah. Such continuity. <laughs> Back to the task at hand. Krusty throws to an itchy and scratchy cartoon, Burning Love, which I think <laughs> you summed up the best earlier, Tom. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, I love Itchy and Scratchy from back then because it's when Itchy and Scratchy was at its most pure. So nothing nuanced, nothing complicated, just Scratchy getting shot with a flaming arrow and running around in flames. Brilliant. What more do you need? Fantastic. Fantastic. Such purity. <laughs> um, yes, so uh, there's a very pointed comment about cartoons shown in primetime being for adults, after which Marge calls Homer at work, asking him to pick up some premium ice cream on the way home. Homer smells a rat, and he's right to be suspicious. The gruesome twosome, Patty and Selma, are coming round to show the family eight punishing carousels of slides from their latest vacation. Mm. To the Quickie Mart, then, where a conspicuously bandit-masked Krusty the Clown is heating a microwave burrito. Homer ponders the various merits of chocolate, double chocolate and triple chocolate ice cream, 
and having made the only logical decision, approaches the counter to pay. Transaction completed, he accidentally steps on Krusty's foot and notices that the clown is brandishing a gun. Homer bravely dives into a display of potato chips and Krusty robs the store, which Apu deals with very efficiently as he is extremely used to armed robbery at this stage of his career. Homer emerges from the chips, the opportunity to prove himself a hero now long gone, and describes the assailant to a sketch artist, only realising at the end that it's cruddy, crummy, Krusty the Clown. Krusty is arrested at his apartment, and Homer is called in to identify him from an all-clown police lineup. Meanwhile, the rest of the family have been bored stupid by the slideshow, when Homer returns, not quite in time to soften the blow from Bart, who hears about Krusty's incarceration from the television news. Patty and Selma also get to hear Homer's derogatory comments about them from the CCTV footage, as unusually, it is CCTV with audio. Mmm, yeah. That was a technological marvel from 1990. Yeah. A disillusioned Bart withdraws to bed to glumly contemplate his Krusty merchandise. A media circus gathers, a classic Springfield media circus, and footage of Krusty's near-fatal heart attack from 1986 is dredged up, along with his literacy campaign, with the hook, Give a hoot, read a book. Bart witnesses him entering the courtroom with his flesh-coloured face. Krusty's pale skin has variously and confusingly been presented as makeup and his actual skin tone throughout the mm. uh, progression of the season. But for this one, he's obviously face-painted when he's uh, uh, in garb. Uh, his drab clothes and his small feet. Krusty's opening night jitters nearly cause him to plead guilty by accident, but Homer's identification of him pretty much seals the deal anyway. His court appearance also leads to a shocking revelation. Krusty is illiterate. He is also eventually found guilty, whilst Reverend Lovejoy oversees a Beatles-style merch burning, which Marge royally stokes with Bart's gigantic collection. Lisa and Maggie watch the Krusty the Clown show, now fronted by Sideshow Bob. Bob discards his trademark slide whistle and describes in honeyed tones his vision for the future of the show, where he will teach the viewers about nutrition, self-esteem, etiquette, and all the mindly arts, whilst continuing to show itchy and scratchy. Sounds like a sweet deal, frankly. But Bart still believes that Krusty is innocent, and having admitted that she is smarter than him, he gets Lisa on board to help him prove it. They find the following deal-breakers. Krusty has a pacemaker, yet was seen close to a microwave, which is contraindicated behaviour. That footage also showed him reading a magazine, the Springfield Review of Books, which of course he could not do. They immediately realise that, as the man closest to Krusty, Sideshow Bob must hold the key facts, as we see the man himself laughing maniacally backstage. The lighting in that scene is fantastic, by the way, as I just noticed on our... Uh, yeah. Now traditional pre uh, pre episode watch through. Yeah, yeah, and and Kelsey Grammer is brilliant as sideshow Bob. The the cut from sort of tears of sadness into maniacal laughter is is wonderful to watch. Bart manages to get some FaceTime on the hastily renamed Sideshow Bob's Cavalcade of Whimsy, <laughs> and presents his evidence. Bob refutes the microwave proximity as Krusty's usual disregard for Doctor's orders and points out the many amusing caricatures in the magazine. But just as Bart's resolve is wavering, he mentions that he has big shoes to fill, leading Bart to remember that Homer had stepped on the robber's foot, which coupled with Krusty's small feet leads Bart to the final piece of the puzzle, Bob's gigantic feet. 
Luckily, Springfield Police Department are idly watching the show rather than working and arrest Bob post-haste. Krusty is released from prison, inexplicably now in his full clown garb. Homer and Chief Wiggum apologise to Krusty, and Krusty thanks the one boy whose faith never wavered, Bart Simpson. There we are. Now, now this is one of your favourites, isn't it, from, from the first series? From season one, yes. And that's with the uh, the obvious rider there from season one. I've said before that I'm not as keen on the first season of The Simpsons as I, uh, as I am on basically any other non-season 11 or 12 season. Mm. Uh, but researching this episode has reminded me very, very clearly of where I was when I first watched this. Oh, go on. Um, which was I was sat on the middle cushion of a three-seater sofa in my friend's living room. He mm. was eating lunch. It must have been around 1400. As the curtains were drawn as a beam of light would render the television unwatchable at that time of day if they were left open. It was just an odd feeling to be back there. It's one of those things life throws at you every so often, just mm. a, a stunning sort of moment of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And it, it turns out I do have a little bit of affection for this episode. And I also think it's the, the first season episode that best approaches how the show will be in a, in a few seasons' time, uh, with the episode laid out not around a relatable happening in family life, uh, but rather a big, potentially continuity-altering event that turns out in the end to have little or no repercussions. Uh, <laughs> aside, in this case, from setting Bob on a path to a life of ever worse crime. Mm, absolutely. Uh, the mystery side of things, I remember really being uh, hooked in by the idea that they needed to find the real criminal and sort of uh, racking my brains to find out who it was until the reveal which comes before the reveal of it pretty obviously being Sideshow Bob. Hmm. Um, I never for a second believed that it was Krusty who robbed the Quickie Mart. Uh, I didn't feel like he had much of a motive, although I noticed on, on that watch through that there are the betting slips. Um, yeah, they they try and establish a motive, but I mean... Not that it's particularly productive to poke holes in an episode like this. I mean, it's not exactly a, an episode of Poirot, is it? But uh, I love it how Sideshow Bob um, disguises himself as Krusty the Clown and still puts on a little robber's mask. <laughs> yep, yep, no one will know who it is then. That little tokenistic effort. I think that's really sweet. Okay, so would you like to hear about some character debuts? Oh, yes. Uh, well, tough, because... Uh, <laughs> there aren't any, are there? Well, there's Ken Brockman, um, but mm. we don't really have time to talk about it today, as we've got two massive characters to talk about. Um, Kent fans, if any, can rest assured we'll get to him eventually. Um, so, this episode sees the debut of Sideshow Bob. Sort of. Uh, Sideshow Bob actually debuted in The Telltale Head, an episode which shows him communicating with his slide whistle, thus cementing that character beat there. Uh, but in that episode, he had different hair, more of a classic afro than the um, thing he has now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for the rest of the Simpsons run. So I think we can probably count this as a debut. Yeah. Certainly Odd- a meaningful debut. Oddly enough, on his on his debut, he looks quite a lot like Brittany, the little girl who's in the opening scene of this episode. So, yes, yes. So, certainly hair-wise, anyway. I wonder if that was uh, why they decided to change the design. Um, Can't have two people on screen with the same hair. Oh, that would be no, terrible. No, 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 no. Can't terrible. do that. Uh, <laughs> so here's Sideshow Bob's uh, first gleaming. And the first question is, how did he get the Sideshow gig if he dislikes it so much? Mm. Well, the Yale-educated Republican character of Robert Underdunk Terwilliger... And it's definitely Underdunk. Definitely Underdunk. ...will be explained in later episodes to have accompanied his brother Cecil 
to an audition for a role on Krusty's show, where he would accidentally upstage his brother with a fantastic pie-in-the-face take, thus taking the sideshow mantle for himself. Mm -hmm. He is voiced iconically by Kelsey Grammer, to the extent that he would, to all intents and purposes, be evil Frasier in later episodes. Bob despises anything he sees as lowbrow, and believes in bringing culture to the masses by any means necessary. Though he will also evolve a murderous streak as regards one Bart Simpson, who has a 100% record of wrecking Bob's evil schemes. Bart, however, is not necessarily his nemesis, as garden rakes are just as much of a thorn in his side. <laughs> I think he's the closest thing The Simpsons has to a villain. Uh, I know we also get Hank Scorpio, but he's more of a supervillain. Mm. I also say Mr. Burns qualifies as a supervillain when he's at his most villainous. Mm. It, no, no normal villain has flying monkeys, uh, even no. if they are flawed. No. Um, but the problem with Mr. Burns as a villain is that Springfield needs Mr. Burns, otherwise no one would have a job. Yes, yes. Bob's appearances have become must-see events in later series. His last appearance to date has come in Season 29, Episode 9, Gone Boy. So that is basically the last season as we say this now. So, you know, a long run. A long run. And speaking of long runs, Krusty the Clown is not even close to making his debut in this episode, if I'm completely honest, as he was even in the shorts. But this is our first chance to take a proper look at one of my favourite characters uh, in his original form before he became a proxy for any celebrity trend or any facet of the Jewish religion that they happened to want to send up at that particular time. Here he is as originally envisaged, one of a great tradition of America's local entertainers, a low-budget television clown, known and revered in Springfield and possibly other parts of the state that Springfield is in, but assumedly very obscure in other parts of America where they doubtlessly have their own versions. And this is uh, people like Bozo the Clown, um, Rusty Nails, kind of, you know, just regional clowns in America, I guess. Yeah, uh, not not something I'm massively familiar with. I'll, I'll be honest. No, no, me neither. But it is a, it is apparently a thing. So okay, um, we don't know this yet. But Krusty was born Herschel Schmoikel Pinchus Hersham Krustovsky. Mm -hmm. If anyone wants to write in and correct my pronunciation, let me assure you that I don't care. <laughs> in the Lower East Side of Springfield, and he is the son of Rabbi Hyman Krustovsky, from whom he is currently estranged as his father couldn't reconcile Krusty's decision to become an entertainer rather than following his footsteps. Krusty's Channel 6 show includes oodles of slapstick at the expense of various sideshow sidekicks, though not sideshow Rahim, an angry, angry man who didn't take such treatment kindly. <laughs> Plus sketches and cartoons, usually the Itchy and Scratchy show, but sometimes replacements such as educational cartoons, Eastern Europe's favourite cat and mouse team, Worker and Parasite. That's brilliant. And in a particularly dire time, the Stingy and Battery show. Oh, yes. We'll devote some time to the evolution of Krusty as we see him progress in the future. But for now, there's a couple of really fun miscellaneous things about Krusty, which I'd imagine devotees of The Simpsons are already aware of. But I get a kick out of them, so I'm chucking them in anyway to act as a great segue into my Did You Knows. Yay. So, Tom, did you know... There was a plan to reveal that Krusty the Clown was Homer Simpson. I haven't heard of that, but it makes sense because they're more or less the same outline. Yep. His character model is so similar to Homer's, including his muzzle. And of course, both are voiced by Dan Castellaneta. The underlying idea was that Bart doesn't respect Homer, but he does respect Krusty. And would find out, I'm guessing as an ending to the series if it got cancelled early on, 
that his father was actually his idol, thus reconciling their fractious relationship once and for all. This doesn't would... make any sense whatsoever. No, no, you're quite <laughs> right. You're quite right. This would presumably have been revealed at the same time as Marge was revealed to be a humanoid rabbit, with her hair hiding ears in the style of Matt Groening's Life in Hell characters, as has also been rumoured as an early idea. Right. So, so, so this was when the Simpsons writers were sort of in a surrealist phase and said, let's make people aliens and people who they can't be in... Well, it's, I guess it's Bizarre. taking advantage of the of the medium of animation, you know. It's uh, leaning more heavily towards the cartoon side than the sitcom side that eventually sort of came out. It's worth noting that Konami's excellent Simpsons arcade game references the Marge rumour, as when Marge is electrocuted, we see that she has rabbit ears as part of her exposed skeleton, which is a line in which absolutely nothing makes sense, but there you go. I did not know that at all. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to have to dig that game up now and play it and play as Marge and get electrocuted. Yeah, I was actually uh, I was actually devoted, some would say sad enough, to uh, sit there wading through sprite captures from the game until <laughs> I found it. So there wow. we go. Uh, but obviously this episode is the death of the concept of Homer as Krusty, as from here on Krusty has an official separate identity. Although Homer would be Krusty after a fashion in 106 episodes time, season 6, episode 15, Homie the Clown, and it's brilliant, and I can't wait until we get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a great one. Speed holes. I'll just leave <laughs> that. Uh, secondly, Krusty was once mooted for the step into live action. Matt Groening is on record as describing a rejected concept where Krusty would be played by Dan Castellaneta and would move to LA to present a talk show with a running joke that the house was on stilts, not unusual in Hollywood due to the mountainous nature of the region, and that the stilts would be attacked by beavers, much to Krusty's chagrin. The idea was put on ice when they realised how expensive either trained or animatronic beavers would be, (laughs) and Matt moved on to start developing a new project, which would eventually become Futurama. Ah, very good. I've got a couple more uh, non-Krusty-related digilos for you. Who trains beavers for TV shows? Is that I, a thing? I don't know, but could I get that job? That sounds like a really interesting job. It's, it sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> I'm, I'm now desperately trying to think of TV shows or films which feature beavers. I'd leave it to beaver doesn't count. I was very disappointed oh, by the lack of beavers in that. That's true. Uh, a couple more uh, non-crusty related digilos for you here. Uh, according to the DVD commentary, Sideshow Bob was planned to be voiced by James Earl Jones, the iconic voice of Darth Vader him off Star Wars. That would make sense. We would have to wait another six months for his Simpsons debut in Season 2, Episode 3, Treehouse of Horror, where he voices Kagan Kodos's seldom-seen pal Serac the Preparer and reads <laughs> The Raven to incredible effect. Also on the commentary, Wallace Wolodarski said that a slide was cut from Patty and Selma's slideshow as it depicted them bringing heroin into America. What? That doesn't necessarily ring true as a character beat to me, but we have to go with the source on that one, I guess. I feel like allegedly accidental drug trafficking via swapped bags was in the news quite a bit back then. So maybe it was topical enough to be something that would have been featured at the time. Yeah, drugs, mules in the early 90s, yeah. Yeah, that happened, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And that is Krusty Gets Busted. Good stuff, good stuff. And now let's warm up our pipes... The Singing Revolution. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Now, in terms of pronunciations, I know Wallace Wolodarski is a, a is an amazing name to pronounce, 
but I've learned my lesson from previous stories, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce all the names of the Estonian, Lithuanian, and Latvian leaders. So on to the actual story. So on the Baltic Sea, in the very northeast corner of Europe, lie three countries, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, known as the Baltic States. Estonia and Latvia have the might of Russia to their east, while Lithuania is bordered by Belarus to the east, Poland to the south, and the Russian exclave of Kaliningrad Oblast. Now that's got a fascinating history of its own, but we're only talking about the Baltic states here. It's easy to dismiss the Baltic states as a geographical oddity that you only ever hear about when the TV show Pointless has an obscure geography round, but they have a rich and varied history. Today, the Baltic states are fiercely independent, each having its own language and flag. Lithuania has a horizontal tricolor of yellow, red, and green. Oh, here come the flags. Fantastic. This is important. I'm not just describing flags because I like flags. Estonia also has a horizontal tricolor, but it's blue, black, and white, while Latvia's flag is a burgundy red field with a thin horizontal white stripe through the middle of it. And what, which one is your favourite? Because I think Estonia is Estonia, for me. Est- Estonia for me because of why it's designed like it's designed, because it's designed to look like an Estonian forest in winter. Oh, fantastic. And when you see it, you go, oh, wow, that's beautiful. The photo, that is. The, the, the photos can be absolutely breathtaking, not, not so much three stripes. Anyway, so you only have to look at their location on the map to guess that they must have been bullied at some point by their more powerful neighbours. It's a little bit like when you look at Malta, an island in the Mediterranean Sea. Throughout its history, Malta has been controlled by various powers, including the Romans, the Arabs, the Normans, the Spanish, the French, and finally the British Empire. So as a result of this, the Maltese language uses a Latin alphabet, but the language is ultimately derived from Arabic. So it's a very similar situation with the Baltic countries. They've been ruled by uh, Poland, Sweden, Russia, Germany, Prussia, the list goes on. The Baltics border Russia, and they're not that far away from Germany, so that should give you some clue as to what's to come. The history of the region is very complex, so I'm going to start in 1869. The Baltics are very much part of the Russian Empire, but in Estonia there's a push to revive Estonian nationality and culture. This year sees the founding of the Laulupidu Singing Festival, where thousands of Estonians gather to sing traditional songs in the open air. Following the chaos of the First World War and the Russian Revolution, Estonia and Lithuania declared independence in February 1918, with Latvia following soon afterwards. Wars of independence followed. Latvia fought against the newly formed Soviet Union and wouldn't become fully independent until 1920. Estonia also fought a war against the Bolsheviks to the east and the Germans to the south. The war ended with the signing of the Treaty of Tartu. Lithuania fought against the Soviets as well as the forces of Poland. Poland being Lithuania's sort of historical ally enemy. It's very, very complicated. Lithuania's independence was recognised by the Soviet-Lithuanian Peace Treaty. The independent Baltic states did well economically throughout the Roaring Twenties. Then the Great Depression hit, following the stock market crash of 1929. Latvia and Lithuania had dictators installed by their militaries, but of course the rise of Nazi Germany and the build-up to World War II posed a real threat. In 1939, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. This non-aggression pact divided the region between German and Soviet spheres of influence. Poland was to be cut in half and the Baltic states were to be occupied by the Soviets. 
The Nazis invaded Poland on September the 1st, 1939, thus starting the Second World War in Europe. In an attempt to placate the Soviet Union, the Baltic states signed a mutual assistance treaty which allowed thousands of Soviet troops to be stationed on their soil. Latvia, under pressure from the Nazis, also agreed to repatriate ethnic Germans. Despite all this, the Soviets threatened invasion and demanded that the Baltic government step down and unlimited numbers of Soviet troops be stationed there. The Soviets then staged elections where the results were known in Moscow 12 hours before the polls closed. (laughs) Yep, that's Soviet democracy for you. Latvia became a socialist Soviet republic and was admitted into the USSR on August 5th, 1940. Once in charge, the Soviets moved to suppress dissent and oppress the population. Over 100,000 people were either killed or deported to gulags in Siberia. Later, Hitler would famously break the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and invade the Soviet Union in Operation Barbarossa. This took Stalin completely by surprise and the Nazis quickly made gains, occupying Riga on July 1st, 1941. Then the flavour of the oppression changed from Soviet to Nazi. Jewish people were rounded up and killed by the Einsatzgruppen, with some help from collaborators. Around 85,000 people died in the Holocaust in Latvia alone. As the tide of the war turned against the Nazis, the Red Army returned to the Baltics. The states were once again incorporated into the Soviet Union. The Soviets were keen to suppress Baltic culture. To this end, nationalist symbols were banned, including the national flags. Ah, uh, here we go. Yep. Um, it's all tying in now. Mm-hmm including the national flags and various songs. The Estonian Singing Festival was allowed to continue, but it was remodelled as a celebration of Soviet culture. So, for example, the Internationale was sung in place of Estonian songs. Having said that, after the war, a new nationalist song was composed that somehow slipped past the Soviet censors, keeping a glint of the Estonian national dream alive. Under the Soviet regime, the Baltics experienced attempted Russification by the central Soviet government. Thousands of people were brought to the Baltic states from Russia, with the government even transplanting whole industries there. So it's just, you know, let's get thousands and thousands of Russian people into the Baltics. Of course, after World War II, Stalin was still in charge, and he carried out mass deportations from the Baltics under Operation Preboy. Thousands of men, women and children were taken from the Baltics to gulags in Siberia, Farms throughout the Baltics were collectivised. Once Stalin died and Nikita Khrushchev took over, things you know, calmed down a bit, but the prospect of Baltic independence was a long way off. National symbols were still banned, as were protests. Anyone attempting to make the case for Baltic independence in any way could expect to be punished. The status quo remained in the Baltics throughout the Khrushchev and Brezhnev eras. Then, after the moribund premierships of Andropov and Chernenko, the Soviet Union turned to the much younger Mikhail Gorbachev for leadership. And he implemented the politics of Glasnost and Perestroika, the the policies that allowed for a McDonald's to be opened in Moscow, for example. I feel like uh, Andropov and Chernenko are podcast favourites. They are a bit, just well, just because it's an excuse for me to get the word moribund in, into, uh, in, into the story. Yes, moribund is a fantastic phrase. So the more we can yeah. get and- Andropov and Chernenko in... Because I imagine there's not that many more years where we're going to be able to reference the Soviet Union. So, you know, we've got to make hay while the sun shines. Well, I suppose so. I mean, I mean, there are two, you know, really key events that I want to do in future episodes, but I want to see if I can crowbar them in at some point. Excellent. 
Okay, so Glasnost and Perestroika. These roughly translate into openness and restructuring, with the former relating to a relaxing of state oppression and increased freedom of speech. In Estonia in 1987, the people attempted to exercise their new freedom of speech rights, but not in a way which you might expect. New strip mining was planned for the region. You know, I know that sounds like a massive segue. It's like, strip mining? What's that got to do with anything? But anyway, so new strip mining was planned for the region and people were against it on environmental grounds. Before Glasnost, any sort of process was illegal, but after... Protesting in the case of the environment was, in theory, fine. So that's what happened. The Estonians, in kind of a, let's poke the hornet's nest, let's see what we can get away with, kind of way, they demonstrated against the strip mining, and it was stopped. So not only did they get away with demonstrating, they used it to get what they wanted. So that emboldened them to see, to see what else the Soviet authorities would tolerate. Estonian people started to gather publicly, and rather than flying their national flag, they flew the constituent parts of it. So they'd fly a blue flag next to a black flag next to a white flag. Ah, oh, okay. So they'd go, yeah, that's not our flag, Soviet authorities. That's three different flags. But yeah. it, is a, it is a compound flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, they largely got away with that. So, and... As the authorities let them get away with more and more, calls for an independent Estonia grew. And there was a similar situation in Latvia and Lithuania. In Lithuania, the reform movement gained popularity. The Lithuanian Supreme Soviet amended its constitution to allow for a multi-party system and to reintroduce the national flag and anthem. They also declared that Lithuanian law would take precedence over Soviet law. This was a wider part of the so-called War of Laws, when the individual republics of the USSR frequently clashed with the central government. You know, Boris Yeltsin in charge of uh, the Russian SSR did that quite a lot. On November 16th, 1988, the Estonian parliament made the Estonian Sovereignty Declaration, declaring that laws made in the Estonian SSR would take precedence over laws made by the Supreme Soviet of the USSR. So Estonia did it as well, basically. So in Latvia, the Popular Front of Latvia and Latvian National Independence Movement became active. History doesn't record whether they clashed with each other in a sort of People's Front of Judea versus Judean People's Front kind of way. Splitter. Yeah, exactly. Then, and this for me is the, the coolest thing about this story, then on August 23rd, 1989, the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, people from all three Baltic states took part in a huge peaceful protest, the Baltic Way. An estimated two million people formed a human chain that joined all three capitals. So off the top of my head, that's about 400 miles. Two million people all in one long line. It's amazing. Yeah, It's like hands across America, but not in America. Yeah, yeah. And it made headline news throughout the world and was enor- it was an enormous achievement, especially when you consider that the, the Soviets still controlled a lot of the media. So, so these days it's difficult to get a few thousand people together for, for any sort of protest. Imagine getting two million people when, you know, to sound old, no social media back then, no email. Well, email existed in the world, but 
when you've got the Soviets controlling the media, you know, very, very difficult thing to do. So, so, so that's the Baltic way, you know, huge, amazing statement. So Latvia took further steps to independence in 1990. The Council of the Latvian SSR held democratic elections, and on May 4th, 1990, they declared that Latvia would become independent following a transitional period. In Lithuania, they held democratic elections in early 1990 and declared independence on March 11th, about seven weeks before Krusty Gets Busted was first aired. What do you? Yeah, yeah, close yeah. enough. So you did mention you're having trouble actually nailing this down to uh, the the exact time. Yeah, so I, I think I think we're fine with a wide bracket on this one. Yeah, fair enough. So although Estonia avoided bloodshed in its quest for independence, Latvia and Lithuania were not so lucky. In January 1991, the people of Latvia set up barricades around Riga in order to stop Soviet troops taking control of key buildings. Four Latvians would die in these clashes. The Soviet Union was nonplussed at Lithuania's declaration of independence too. Initially, this indignation took the form of sanctions, followed by the Red Army taking control of a few buildings. Following this, the Soviets attempted to support the National Salvation Committee, which was opposed to Lithuanian independence. The Soviets took the Vilnius TV tower by force, killing 14 civilians and injuring 140. This left Lithuania largely cut off from the outside world and only able to communicate with an amateur radio station set up in the Lithuanian parliament. You know, sort of like ham radio type thing going on there. Oh, okay. And then came the events of the 19th of August 1991, a very important date in the final days of the USSR. And I don't think I've talked about this on the show before, so, so off we go. Disillusioned by Gorbachev's reforms a group of communist hardliners launched a coup against him. Gorbachev at the time was on holiday at his dacha and his phone lines were cut. You know, because, and that must have been terrifying because that's what happened when Khrushchev was overthrown. The coup leaders, however, were hesitant in their planning. The Russian president, Boris Yeltsin, faced down tanks in Moscow. The coup failed and Gorbachev returned to power, albeit severely weakened. And the coup had huge implications for the Baltic states. Although short-lived, the coup plotters had a fairly strong grip on the military, and they were opposed to any of the Soviet socialist republics breaking away from the Union. So while Gorbachev had, I don't know if tolerated is the right word, but he was certainly in some way lenient, certainly more lenient than Brezhnev would have been, on, on any of the states of the Union trying to assert their own independence. Whereas the coup plotters come in and they go, right, no one's been independent, send them the army, you know, kick out the regional governments, do whatever you need to do. So in Estonia, the people prepared for an attack by the Red Army by putting up makeshift barricades. Fearing that they might not get another chance to do so, the Estonian parliament declared full independence on August 20th, 1991. However, as the coup was so short-lived, I mean, it was called off the next day, the troops were called off. On the 21st, Latvia also declared an end to their transition period and also declared full independence. During the coup, the Red Army seized control of a few key buildings in Lithuania, but they went back to barracks after the coup failed. So it's, you know, a, a, a really momentous three days and that coup just like really sp- that sped everything up, essentially. I imagine that Estonia must have been a bit, a bit panicked to suddenly be fully independent. 
Hmm. But then the cause of them being fully independent was essentially cancelled. They just kind of left, um, stood on the desk. Yeah, uh, kind of. Trousers around their ankles. <laughs> like, uh, ah, whoops. Well, um, well, but it seems to have worked out well for them. Yeah, so. exactly. Well, well, they wanted to be independent anyway. Um, but, but yeah, it quickly went from a, a sort of do or die type thing to, hey, we've done it. Hooray! So the USSR had little life left in it and it was officially dissolved on Christmas Day 1991, with all the remaining republics becoming independent countries. Since then, the Baltic states have developed into what you might call successful Western democracies. They all became UN member states in 1992 and turned their attentions to the West. Estonia became a member of NATO in 2003, followed by Latvia and Lithuania the following year. 2004 also saw each of the Baltic states join the European Union following a series of referenda where membership was accepted by roughly two to one. You know, smart people in the Baltics, they, they know what's good for them. And a majority uh, of more than a couple of percent. Absolutely, absolutely. Estonia adopted the euro, followed by Latvia in 2014 and Lithuania in 2015. As for the Estonian Song Festival, the Laulupidu, it's still going strong. The choir has 30,000 singers in it, and the audience is about 80,000. The next one is planned for 2019, and I'd love to go, provided our money is still worth something. So the choir is three-eighths of the size of the audience? Pretty much, pretty much. They, they have this absolutely enormous stand. I've, 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 I've seen videos of it. So 30,000 people singing in unison. And obviously you can't, you can't capture that with audio. So I'd absolutely love to go to it, knowing the, knowing the historical significance of it. Because, because it's a day when Estonians celebrate being Estonian. Because one of the things that, that annoys me about some people is when they go on about nations and there shouldn't be any borders and you shouldn't take pride in your country or anything like that. But I just, I just don't think people have been in a situation where outside powers prevent you from being what you want to be, essentially. Yeah. So, you know, the Baltics suffered horribly in the Second World War. Yeah, as did as did loads of places, but but they but they like had the worst of both worlds. They, they had the Soviets and they had the Nazis and they had the Soviets again, and the Soviets didn't want them to be Lithuanian, Latvian, Estonian. They wanted them to be Russian over time. They wanted to try and relegate the language, relegate the culture. Pe- people hid flags for sixty odd years. You know, once the Soviets came back, they, they took their national flags, put them under the bed in jaws, whatever. And when the independence movements came, uh, came, then they took them out again. So, 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 so yeah, n- nationalism for, for the Baltics is so much more than just waving a flag and 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 singing a few songs. It it it, it means being who you want to be and not being under the yoke of Soviet or Nazi oppression. Excellent. Well, I was just going to make a, a joke about the size of the band compared to the size of the audience, and then I remembered I have actually played to audiences that weren't as big as my <laughs> band, and I used to play in a three-piece. So. Oh, one of the reasons I, lo- I, I, I love studying the Baltics, and, you know, because they are kind of obscure little countries if you look at them on the map, and they're really easy to miss in terms of modern history or whatever, but, but, but um, I just think the 
turnaround is absolutely incredible because you know up until late 80s early 90s they were part of the soviet union you know not part of the sphere of influence not not within the iron curtain you know like east germany and poland poland were they were actually part of the soviet union and now they're part of the european union you know complete other side and and and, and they're part of nato and that is certainly still a big issue today in 2018 because you've got donald trump who talks about weakening nato and you've got a very much emboldened Russia under Vladimir Putin, who's already invaded Crimea, and technically he hasn't invaded eastern Ukraine, but he has, basically. And you, you, you just get the idea that, that Putin would absolutely love to have the Baltic states back for Russia. But that NATO alliance, that's, that's, keeping, that's keeping him away. Yeah, you've got to watch out for all this Putin bashing you keep doing on the podcast. We've got a couple of cathedrals here in Liverpool. You never know who might pay you a visit. That's true. That's true. That's true. Absolutely. The only other thing I might as well mention is that, is that I have actually been to the Baltics. Well, I've, I've been to Riga, capital of Latvia, and it's an absolutely beautiful city. It's quite small, um, but it's got so much architecture, culture. Um, although... although a major building in Riga is called the House of Blackheads, which isn't the most appealing name for a building. Is it sponsored by Clearasil? No, it's not, funnily enough. Um, but one word of warning, they have a drink over there called Black Balsam, and it's disgusting. <laughs> so it's not just horrendously strong, it's actually... Well, it's very strong, but it's supposed to be sort of more medicinal, like a tonic... And it tastes like it. It tastes like like really bad cough syrup. So sorry if anyone from Latvia is offended like that, but by that, but you know, black balsam is revolting. <laughs> and if you are from Latvia and were offended by Tom, then, uh, <laughs> please drop us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org or get in touch via Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore because we certainly can't. Yep. And with that, I think that uh, that just about wraps it up. We've got one more episode left of Series 1. We have. And it's rubbish. <laughs> there we are. It's rubbish. Look forward to that, folks. Uh, by which I mean the episode of The Simpsons is rubbish, not the episode of our excellent podcast, which will, of course, be excellent. Yes, yes. And if you think it's excellent, please leave us a review on iTunes. Oh, you would have no idea the, the uh, medicinal effect... <laughs> of uh, Black Balsam. Sorry, I mean a, a five-star uh, review on iTunes of a rainy Monday morning. <laughs> Not that I'm begging or anything, but, no, you know, it, it, it's, it's good. But it's, it's good. true. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, cool. Well, we'll see you all next time. Okay. Bye, everyone. <laughs>